0: Hello, everyone this is Generation jihad. I'm Bill Roggio. I am a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today we have a special guest, a, a friend of mine, Hussein Haqqani. Hussein uh, was Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from April 2008 to November 2011. Uh, certainly an interesting time uh, arguably ar- arguably the uh, nadir of. US Pakistan relations. Uh, currently, uh, Hussein is a senior fellow and the director for South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute. He also co-edits The Current Trends in Islamist Ideology, um, which is also published by Hudson Institute's Center for Islam, Democracy, and Future of Muslim World. Welcome to Generation Jihad Hussein, and thank you for joining me.
1: Pleasure being here. Bill, always
0: good to talk to you. Yes, always good to talk to you. It's been a while, Hussein. I think the last time you and I spoke was, did, did a public appearance together was in early June of, uh, 2021. That was right at the, right in the heart of the Taliban offensive to take over the country. Um, and previously we did a panel at, at Hudson together with an ambassador, former Afghan ambassador to the UAE, Javid Ahmed. Um, it was a, It's it's been a long year, has it not? Hussein? Yep. Yeah. And in
1: on both occasions, what we said unfortunately came out true. The warnings we gave, we warned against the Doha Agreement. We warned against the Taliban uh, being considered partners in peace. Uh, instead, we said that the Taliban would take Afghanistan by force because that's who they are. That's what they believe. Uh, we didn't buy into the narrative that the Taliban have changed and will all of a sudden uh, cut some kind of a deal with the United States. Uh, we pointed out that their narrative was, and by the way, six months in uh, after their uh, taking over Afghanistan, it still continues to be one of uh, the victory. Uh, of their ideology and their system of beliefs uh, over uh, the Western way of life. So we were not wrong during that period. Unfortunately, American public opinion uh, sometimes is swayed by bumper stickers. And in this case, there was a bumper sticker, end of forever wars. Not that any of us wants a forever war, uh, but if you have gone in somewhere Uh, to fight, then you should at least know what you're fighting for and how you might succeed. And uh, in this instance, uh, on both counts, the United States, uh, shall we say, uh, did not uh, perform very well.
0: No, I could not agree with you more, Hussein. And also, know who you're fighting. I mean, this was a major problem In all of this, we did not understand our enemy. We did not understand its its singular goal to reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, that it had a deep religious motivation that kept it going in the darkest days. I mean, you had a U.S. advisor to both the chairman and joint chiefs of staff and, and General Miller, who was the commander of Resolute Support, the last NATO command saying we didn't understand that that. Afghanistan, that the Taliban in Afghanistan fought had a religious motivation for its war. And when you don't know your enemy, when you're not committed, and like, as you noted perfectly, you know, when your goal is our, our singular goal for three administrations from the Obama administration to the, through the Trump administration to the Biden administration was to end the war in Afghanistan. Absolutely. When,
1: when, when, when you go somewhere, uh, where you have, uh, 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 toppled a regime that was already there for several years uh, with the help of local people. But you uh, and you say we are here primarily to uh, uh, make sure that the US is not attacked again. Then you change your objective to saying, but we want to leave a stable and and a uh, forward-looking Afghanistan uh, behind. Uh, you change your objective. But then more important than that, Um, You keep saying, and by the way, we want to get out quickly. Now, I have a little story here that in 2000, as you noted, I was Pakistan's ambassador between 2008 and 2011. And that was when the Obama administration had already been talking about first uh, putting in more troops into Afghanistan, the famous surge. But the surge came with a withdrawal deadline. So I kept telling everybody, including President Obama, the story of how Mullah Omar used to say he was the founder of the Taliban, that uh, the Americans have watches and we have the time. And I said, what that means is that if you tell them that we are about to withdraw, so we're coming in, guns blazing, 100,000 people now get sorted out. And then say, and by the way, at the completion of one year, we'll bring those 100,000 and everybody else out. All you're telling somebody who says that we have the time is you got another year to wait us out. And then when you say, now we need to find a partner in peace, that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to talk to the Taliban. We are trying to find appropriate Taliban negotiators, which also started happening by 2009, 2010. Then you are giving a signal that, you know, we will... Uh, uh, that that we will get out and so therefore start preparing for it. It became a little longer for the Taliban and for those in Pakistan who were uh, supporting the Taliban or uh, um, acquiescing to their uh, uh, sort of uh, eventual return to power. So all the U.S. did was signal to the enemy that really we are trying very hard so that you stop being our enemy. Uh, Our goal is not to defeat you. Our goal is not to uh, uh, eliminate you. Our goal is not to win you. It's just to make sure that you talk to us. And then when the talks were held again, uh, the talks went all over the place. The Taliban never budged. They kept saying in everything, They said exactly what they have said from day one, that the emirate will be restored, that the Islamic system that the emirate brought with it will be restored. And American negotiators, especially uh, Mr. Khalil Zad, completely misled uh, the American public by saying we are negotiating a peace deal when he was negotiating a withdrawal deal. And President Trump didn't really care. Uh, he didn't care much about a lot of things in the world, let us be honest. Uh, he he had a kind of a, a 1930s attitude towards American security. You know, we've got two oceans, we are fine. Why do we need to do so much in the world? Um, and uh, President Biden, even when he was vice president, he had this attitude that, look, Uh, We went there to eliminate Al-Qaeda, and both these presidents and some of their senior advisors had been misled by those who thought that now advances in technology allow America to be able to monitor uh, and conduct surveillance of uh, Al-Qaeda, quote-unquote, over the horizon. Uh, And so, therefore, there was no need to remain militarily present in Afghanistan. Also, There was a total overestimation of what America had built in Afghanistan. The truth was what America had built was a house of cards propped up by American contractors who were making lots of money and funneling that money back into uh, the United States or the international financial system. And yet... Everybody here, and President Biden to this day does that. We spent $100 billion. Well, you didn't spend $100 billion in Afghanistan. You may have spent it in the name of Afghanistan, but a lot of it was spent on American companies and contractors who are all here. Uh, And uh, some good was done. A lot of good was done in Afghanistan. uh, But at the same time, uh, it was all done uh, on the quick. Lastly. Um, no military can be raised in on the quick for the simple reason that it takes um, almost 27, 28 years for a second lieutenant to rise to general. And so unless you go through that whole cycle, any shortcut will mean that there will be people uh, in the senior command uh, in, a, in an army who do not have uh, any idea uh, proportionate to their position. You will have people with the title of general uh, whose training is no more than that of a captain, say, for example, in the regular army. And you can't have esprit de corps in an army that has been raised quickly and without giving it time to develop that esprit de corps. And lastly, you come to a country like Afghanistan, Uh, which had a very small GDP when the Americans arrived there. And you just pump lots and lots of money uh, to the elites. What you end up doing then is uh, you create a competition among them for that money, which is what was happening. That is why every Afghan politician was coming to Washington and whispering in the ears of people, oh God, you know, so-and-so he's so corrupt and -and so-and-so he's doing this and -and so-and-so he's being nepotistic, whereas everybody was doing the same thing. But that kind of kept the Americans uh playing this chessboard game about who 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 should lead and who should who should be considered reliable in Afghanistan uh, instead of letting it all develop organically. And just to give you an example, uh the Russians supported Hafiz Assad and his regime in Syria. Hafiz Assad is still in power. The Russians didn't send the number of troops that America sent to Afghanistan. The Russians did not spend the kind of money America did in Afghanistan. And yet the Russian, uh, shall we say, proxy is still in power. The Americans called the Afghan government or the Afghan Republic their proxy, but that is no longer in power. So there is something to be said about having a smaller but more effective footprint uh, in in a country which has an insurgency going on uh, then uh, uh, then the americans seemed to have understood or realized but all of that as the, as we all say in this country is history
0: it sure is and and i certainly hope we can learn those lessons but what i've learned about in washington is that we seldom do learn we should have learned after vietnam how to support a government had to big a Have you military. thought
1: about why we don't learn? And I'll tell you why. And yeah, absolutely. i you know, would love to hear yeah, that. I'm yes. talking as an American to another American now for this moment, uh, 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 even if I was born and served the state of Pakistan. Uh, America has, first of all, a tendency to kind of not take an interest in other cultures and understanding the details. Uh, second, we don't dwell on failure. Third, uh, each time we go into something like this, it becomes a quote unquote, it's a good thing to say this crisis is an opportunity. It's a great, great line. It's a good talking point. But what it does is it creates a lot of selfish, invested interests. So uh, in Vietnam, uh, there were all these, for example, there were the logistics companies, there were the um, non governmental organizations, there were the uh, sort of uh, People thinking are uh, t- trying to develop all kinds of uh, uh, institution building groups, etc. So, the what 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 in Washington D.C. is derisively called sometimes the Beltway Bandits. And, and, and there were all these people, they arrived, there were, uh, there were NGOs, everybody was trying to teach. Instead of learning from the Afghans, what can we do for you? We were trying to tell them everything from how to run a school uh, to how to, uh, uh, how to manage their uh, parliament to what kind of government should they have, etc. We never had a trusted group in Afghanistan whom we would say, okay, these are our allies. Let them figure out. We are the ones who will be providing them the necessities. In the end, we end up spending loads and loads of money, and we spend that money um, mostly uh, on our institutions and companies, uh, which is not the best way uh, to, uh, to strengthen another government.
0: Yeah. And Hussein, you, you touched on exactly what I wanted to bring up next, which is in addition to not understanding our enemy. We didn't understand our allies and we didn't understand our frenemy. So you laid out the case as our frenemy being Pakistan here. You laid out – perfectly laid out the case for Afghanistan. We, we built the, the Afghan military that we wanted, not the military that the Afghans needed. We built an Afghan government that we wanted, not a government that the Afghans needed, especially in a rural and a complex uh, situation. I don't want to get into the details of that. But it, we built a government like we wanted and, and created many of the problems, the problems of, uh, of, uh, support, you know, of the president supporting district governors. I mean, how insane is that? You think that is in a, a situation ripe for corruption?
1: Oh, yeah. We had judges. We had judges from Alabama training judges in Afghanistan. How, how, how? Uh, I mean, I ran into one, actually. Once I was in, visiting Alabama and I ran into this judge and he had just come after a one-year stint. He, he said, oh, you're from Pakistan? Yeah, well, you know, I was in Afghanistan just now. And I said, oh, you went to to visit? And he said, no, 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 I was there on a... Uh, on on, And because we paid heavy uh, huge amounts of money for anybody who went there. But how sane is a judge from uh, America's South uh, helping quote unquote build a judicial capacity in Afghanistan.
0: It's it's things like this that uh, I, you, we look back and you just wonder what were we doing? Again, we were we were trying to impress our culture, our legal system, our military system, our system of government on a people that that should have been able to figure this out, but we wanted to be president. And-
1: And there are people in every country, uh, I tell you, uh, who are impressed by our culture, who do learn from us, but that should be an organic process, not a transplanting process. That's a different subject. On the subject of the frenemy, since you brought it up, here's the problem. We always also wanted to assume throughout all of this that since General Pervez Musharraf, who was Pakistan's military dictator at the time of 9-11, he had responded, quote-unquote, positively to America's overture after 9-11, letting them, uh, let American troops go through Pakistan, let American flights go through Pakistan. Uh, we, it was almost as if we wanted to believe that Pakistan had completely done a 360 degree, uh, a 180 degree Change and had had changed its worldview. It hadn't. And especially under the Bush administration, there was a tendency in Washington, D.C. to think that, look, our enemy is al-Qaeda and the international terrorist groups and the Taliban are local hobos. They are a problem in Afghanistan, but they are not the people that we need to fight that much. We only need to uh, bring some of them to Guantanamo to interrogate them to try and see if we can get them to tell us something about bin Laden's location. So Pakistan misunderstood, or shall we say understood correctly, America's view that it, the Afghanistan was not of particular interest to it. And there were people like President Biden, who even as Vice President had already said, Pakistan, America has more interests with Pakistan than it does with Afghanistan. So Pakistan calculated that if we continue to support the Taliban, who are our only uh, uh, who are the only major group in Afghanistan that is positively disposed towards Pakistan because everybody else seems to dislike Pakistan's meddling in Afghan, uh, Afghanistan, especially after the withdrawal of the Soviet Union, uh, then the Americans, yeah, they'll complain, they'll uh, they, 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 they'll protest, they'll uh, threaten, they'll but they won't do much. And so the Pakistani calculus was correct. And Now, of course, putting my Pakistani hat on, let me say that I'm one of those who thinks that that will that'll bring Pakistan to grief as well, because you cannot, as Hillary Clinton rightly said when she went to Pakistan, that you cannot... Uh, keep snakes in your backyard thinking that they will only bite your neighbors. So Pakistan will have a jihadi problem because you and I have focused on jihadi groups for a long time. Their ideologies are not national. They they may focus on a national area because of the origins of the members of a particular group, but their ideology and philosophy is always transnational and they always think in universal terms. So therefore, they will Pakistan will have problems. It's already having some. The TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, uh, have become active again. And Afghan Taliban are not acting against them the way Pakistan wants them to do. But then there was a time when TTP had Pakistani official support and tolerance. And TTP supported the Afghan Taliban. So on ground, the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban have a relationship that the relatively modern um, chess players of the Pakistani intelligence service uh, may not necessarily fully comprehend either. Because these guys are also Western trained and and have a a, a more uh, westernized way of thinking than the Taliban do. The Taliban have a belief system. When recently the Taliban prime minister said that the Taliban did not come to power uh, to provide bread to people. They came to power to impose Islam. They were reflecting their belief system. This is what they believe. And there are people like that in Pakistan too. So hooking up with one another, they are going to become a problem not only for uh, uh, for uh, Afghanistan, which they are oppressing and where they are really uh, ruling very brutally, they will become a problem for the border areas of Pakistan and eventually for the rest of Pakistan as well. And as far as international terrorist groups are concerned, uh, we have a lot of evidence that they are uh, recongregating in Afghanistan, uh, reconverging there. And, and and the reason is very simple, even if the Taliban, even if the Taliban, were to say, okay, we are very pragmatic, uh, but out of a pragmatic political need, we will not let any group organize here. They will never crack down on individuals. And the reason is is very simple. If you are a mujahid or a person who has engaged in jihad, and there is a fellow mujahid who is also engaging in jihad, that person is your brother in faith. You are looking for reward in the hereafter. Why would you, under America's pressure or Pakistan's pressure or the European Union's pressure or the United Nations' pressure, lose the merit that you think you have earned in the hereafter uh, by turning on your brother in faith? So, yes, China can do all it wants with the Taliban, and the Taliban may not allow any large-scale training facilities for Uyghur uh, uh, jihadis. But individual Uyghur jihadis will be able to come and go as they want. Individuals similarly Pakistan. Right now, Pakistan is the Taliban's biggest backer and their lifeline in many ways because the rest of the world is not engaging them. But Pakistan is where their families are. Pakistan is where they've received medical uh, care all these years. Pakistan is where they've received arms, training, and money from. So all of that might result in some uh, concessions being made to Pakistan in terms of not allowing um, a big uh, organizational uh, sort of structures being created publicly. But again, individual Pakistani jihadis will always be welcomed in a jihadi-controlled Afghanistan, and the same will apply to jihadis from all over the world. And the jihadis know that. And in their own internal literature, they talk about it. They've always spoken about it, that ours is a brotherhood of belief and not understanding that brotherhood of belief, assuming that somehow uh, um, individuals uh, from um, uh, various jihadi groups uh, will be turned out of Afghanistan by the Taliban in return for some uh, worldly reward from the U.S. or the EU Um, I think that is a huge mistake that will continue the uh, tragedy of errors that defines uh, America's engagement with Afghanistan.
0: Hussein, you, you perfectly at the beginning of your statement, uh, described what my colleague and friend Tom Jocelyn calls the wheel of jihad. And I'll just briefly uh, mention that. So the Pakistani state supports the Afghan Taliban. The Afghan Taliban supports the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban attacks the Pakistani state. And then so on and so on. The wheel turns. And this is, this is the tragedy of this. Um, so. Uh, my website's been blocked in Pakistan. I think for about nine or ten years now. It's uh... well, at least there's something
1: common between you and me. So. Yes,
0: right. I'm sure. I'm sure you're quite familiar with what I'm talking. They, they just the the elements of the ISI and the state are just was never happy with my reporting on the links with the Haqqanis and the Pakistani state and the yeah, To state.
1: be fair to them, to be fair to them, they they are blinded by their worldview. Uh, the since the inception of pakistan and pakistan was carved out of india and created into a new country pakistan has always had this sort of identity crisis it's uh, various ethnic groups or nationalities uh, some of them were, were independent nations uh, in history before the british took over the region uh, and the british then left in 1947 with a new country called pakistan which had not existed in history before so so Pakistan's military became the center of the effort to try and create a new Pakistani nation. Now, they're always afraid that the Pashtuns uh, who dominate in Pakistan, Northwest, and some parts of Balochistan, that they would want to make common cause with Pashtuns in Afghanistan, that there are Baluch who want to, and there have been some terrorist attacks by the Baluch militants recently and some military, uh, not terrorist attacks, but militant attacks on on, on military facilities in Balochistan. Then there is Sin. And so so because of that, Pakistan has always thought that it has only two or three things to worry about. First is make sure that that, uh, local nationalisms or sub-nationalisms do not uh, gain ground. Try to subdue them with a common Islamic nationalism. Uh, So Pakistan kind of sponsors, becomes a state sponsor of jihadi ideology and not because everybody... Like For example, people like General Musharraf, very modern, very westernized, they don't really practice it, but they think it's useful politically. And secondly, there's a a fear that India is a permanent enemy. And so the reason why Pakistan supported the Taliban was because they thought the Taliban looked towards Islamabad, whereas every other Afghan group and uh, 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 political entity looks towards New Delhi. They all think that you know the creation of Pakistan has deprived Afghanistan of a much worthier and larger neighbor called India. And so that philosophy has been at work. So they are sometimes even willing to pay a price. I have spoken to Pakistani so Pakistani officials who say, yeah, the TTP creating disturbance in Pakistan, Pakistani jihadis causing problem in Pakistan is a bad thing. But it's a small price for us to have an Afghanistan where our influence is greater than that of India. So that's the unfortunate way of thinking, which I find very disturbing and worrying. I wrote in Foreign Affairs in August last year that uh, Pakistan sees uh, the return of Taliban as a victory, but it's going to be a pyrrhic victory because Pakistan will have a lot of threats. Pakistan has not been able to grow economically because of all this jihad business. Pakistan has not been able to develop its democracy. Pakistan is lagging behind in a lot of um, measures of success of states and countries. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the way they think it's like, it's like, say, for example, the Soviets, they thought very differently from, from the rest of the world. So uh, by their standards, they have accomplished something by enabling the Taliban to come back to power. And if they have to pay a little bit of a price in the form of some jihadi activity getting revived in Pakistan and challenging the Pakistani state, they'll deal with it. That's the way they look at it.
0: Yeah, Hussein, that is uh (laughs) I'm just sitting over here smiling and laughing as you're talking about this. This is something that's bothered me from the very beginning. I'm often accused of being anti-Pakistan, and the reality is I'm deeply sympathetic to the Pakistani people. Those tens of thousands of Pakistanis have died. Not you know, this wasn't trivial. Dozens of Pakistanis dying because of some jihadist activity, but Pakistani soldiers and policemen and thousands of civilians killed in TTP and other terrorist group movement in Taliban and Pakistan and other terror groups' attacks when they. Took over all of the tribal areas and large chunks of what was then Khyber, which is now Khyber Pakhtunkhwa or Northwest Frontier Province. I mean, uh, the Pakistani state only decided to move in when they went into Buner, which was 60 miles from Islamabad. It's this is this is the real frustrating part of this, you know, of watching how the Pakistani state has been. And and I realize that's a. I'm lumping. I know there's a lot of Pakistani officials. I know you were one of them at the time who abhorred this, this type of attitude. That that primarily amongst the military and the inner service intelligence directorate. But there are Pakistani politicians who are just fine with this as well. And this this just always bothered me. This comes from an American perspective and. What is, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. How does, the? you know, you this really must tear you up inside when you see, you know, the absolutely, country you're born absolutely. in. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Look, it hurts me that Pakistan has the world's second largest out-of-school population of five to 15-year-olds in the world after Nigeria. We don't send all our children to school. At the time of partition, Pakistan had a literacy rate of about 16%. India had a literacy rate of 18%. India is now in the 70s. Of percentage in literacy, Pakistan is still hovering around early 50s, 52, 53 percent literacy. Um, we have not we have not built. Uh, 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 we, we have had uh, four military coups. We have had multiple changes of government. Our system of government is not stable. Our judicial system is not uh, uh, well funded. Uh, internally, we have. Uh, many problems because of that, and yet, and yet, the Pakistani elite thinks that the only thing that matters is competing with India, and there too, except in nuclear weapons, Pakistan is losing the competition in virtually everything. So instead of looking at cooperation with India, cooperation with Afghanistan. Pakistan has chosen a different path. Now, one explanation for that is something that I've given in my books, which is that at the time of partition of the subcontinent, when Pakistan came into being, Pakistan got uh, 17% of the resources of British India, 19% of British India's population. This was including East Pakistan, which later on became Bangladesh. So it's even less than that now after Bangladesh became independent. But 33% of British India's army. Because if you remember for the Second World War, the British had recruited lots of people from the subcontinent and a very large number of them, almost one third, had been recruited from the area that is now Pakistan. And that one third was given to Pakistan. So instead of being like other countries where an army is raised proportionate to the threat that the country faces, Pakistan ended up having an army to start with and had to look for a threat proportionate to the size of its army. And and then the second challenge was how to pay and f- pay for that and fund that army. And uh, Pakistan ended up becoming an ally of the United States in an effort to pay for that military. And the justification for keeping that huge military capability was India, uh, and, a, and a and a deep animosity towards India and a notion that India is an existential enemy uh, in the modern era. Uh, Most countries understand that there is no such thing as a permanent or existential enemy. You can actually, uh, your enemies change over time. Uh, So so, so that has created this single-minded India-centric worldview, which after the Soviets left became like an obsession of like having a government in Afghanistan of Pakistan's choice. And that that will enable Pakistan to bargain better with India. India is anxious to try and find land and rail routes to Central Asia, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Central Asia is a resource-rich region, plus it's also the gateway uh, to Eurasia. China is already building raid and ro- ra- rail and road links, trying to link Asia to Europe via Central Asia. So why can't uh, uh, others? So, so so Pakistan, if it controls Afghanistan, then Pakistan is in a better bargaining position with the US, with India, with Central Asia, and it will sit in the middle of it all and be more powerful and important. It's an, errone- an erroneous construct. Um, I've written uh, sort of book-length uh, 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 rebuttals to that erroneous construct, uh, but it's a construct that is very much there, and therefore, it dictates policy.
0: Is there any hope of this? Uh, of this. India-centric worldview changing in Pakistan anytime soon? Is there a real movement to to, to get beyond the militarization of Pakistan and its foreign policy? So
1: or- all those who have uh, articulated uh, the case against it have uh, often been labeled as traitors or uh, foreign agents and therefore uh, sort of rendered incapable of changing public opinion. Uh, school curriculum, Mass media, all of it is used to keep the construct alive. But there are real uh, economic uh, difficulties ahead. Pakistan uh, is overly borrowed. Uh, uh, Pakistan has borrowed heavily. Uh, 28% of its borrowing is from uh, uh, China. Uh, Pakistan's uh, exports are not growing. Its economy is not growing. And so they will hopefully. Come a point where people will say, what the heck, we need a better life at home rather than pursuing some imaginary uh, permanent uh, animosity. We are not there yet. Secondly, uh, some Pakistanis, including the current Pakistani army chief, have said uh, publicly that we need to change this. But apart from saying that, they haven't gone beyond. And when you have a whole, uh, shall we say, structure of state and structure of learning and thinking uh, that revolves around an idea, then it takes a long time to change it. Look, uh, we've seen it in the Middle East. Uh, there was a law for a long time, there was a worldview that uh, to be Arab meant to be against Israel and that the, the, the unity of the Arab world was, uh, was, was, was the primary goal of every Arab country. Remember that phase? Many, many years. But then, finally, uh, President Sadat of Egypt uh, took a little uh, pickaxe to that uh, hard wall, uh, made a little opening, then Jordan joined it, and now, of course, the United Arab Emirates has taken the lead, and it has changed uh, uh, that construct uh, considerably. It doesn't mean it's going to change overnight. There are still people in the Arab world who think all those who deal with Israel uh, from amongst the Arabs are uh, not "quote unquote" good enough Arabs. But the realization is slowly coming, in. even in Saudi Arabia, you read every now and then an op-ed columnist saying, "But why don't we make friends with Israel and take advantage of the technological developments that are taking place there?" Etc. Etc. And we will see that uh, resonating because the um the whole first made in the wall with uh, the opening of relations between egypt and israel uh, has 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 it it laid the foundations for for change in case of india and pakistan that foundation is still needed
0: yeah and i think the issue of of uh, jammu and kashmir uh, is one that certainly that issue needs to be settled and and before this anything can happen with this and this gets to again pakistan a, either,
1: using, well yeah but it, it 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 could be one of those many issues in the world that cannot be settled and so either pakistan reconciles to the fact that it may not be settled immediately uh, and moves beyond uh, because uh, because the only practical solution that has ever been forwarded is that okay Pakistan keeps the part of Kashmir that it already has, and India keeps the part it has, and then we move forward making some adjustments in it. But that's not enough of a victory for Pakistan or success for Pakistan, considering that you've spent 74 years. So it's it's a sunken cost fallacy. Pakistan has spent so much time and so much energy and so much resources on trying to, quote-unquote, force India's hand into having a plebiscite in Kashmir and uh, which which they expect to result in an overwhelming vote in the Kashmir Valley for all Kashmiris to come to Pakistan. And it's not going to happen. And deep down, many people know that. But then uh, you talked about the wheel of jihad. Well, part of the wheel of jihad is what I would say is the uh, economy of jihad. Uh, many jihad movements uh, have become a way of life for people. And uh, and and so it's it's an, it's a unique situation where a belief system, uh, a, a form of political activism, and an economy are all converged. And so it's a lifestyle. <laughs> uh, once a mujahid, always a mujahid, kind of thing. You know, once a jihadi, always a jihadi. So you are. That's what happened after the Soviets left. If you remember, all these people of Al Qaeda, uh, that Bin Laden and uh, actually Bin Laden's teacher. Uh, 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 Dr. Azam had gathered as people who helped the Afghans fight the Soviets. They didn't just go back home and pick up their normal lives and say, okay, well, we helped the Soviets go out. Now we're going back and going back to doing whatever we used to do before. They said, nah, now we have to Islamize Afghanistan. Now we have to bring a global Islamic revolution. And that is a very tempting belief system. So, so Kashmir start, becomes the entry point for a lot of young Pakistanis to get into jihad, but in the end, it's not just about Kashmir for them. For them, it is about changing the world and making Islam preeminent again, and uh, and 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 rejecting modern borders. Reject. I mean, it's it's, it's overturning like five, six, seven hundred years of decline of Muslim power uh, through violence. And that's not easy to change without offering a different and alternative belief system. Giving you the example, Middle East, again, Saudi Arabia, UAE, they are all undergoing changes. They're trying to convince their younger people that having a better life, improving your life's living standards, uh, having a, a multicultural reality like dubai uh, where economic opportunities are a plenty and everybody's like you know busy trying to have a good life that that's not a bad thing that you can pray and fast and uh, go to makkah for the hajj and be a pious muslim and yet be a prosperous muslim uh, that stage has not come in pakistan there the alternative to uh, development and prosperity. And then you have people like Prime Minister Imran Khan, uh, a playboy in his youth, a cricket player, ostensibly westernized at that time, and everybody's saying, wow, he'll be different. And yet all he does is play to people's religious sentiments all the time. And and, and so, so non-practicing uh, people playing to religious sentiment and then these hardcore believers saying, ah, well, since you already care about, about this, Why do you go off behind why why do you follow these non-practicing people? Follow us. So it's very easy for them to recruit more jihadis, which is which 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 is an unending cycle.
0: I'm Bill Raggio and this is Generation Jihad. Today we're joined by Hussein Haqqani. He was Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. from April 2008 to November 2011, and he is a senior fellow and the director for South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute. Hussein and I are discussing Afghanistan, the Taliban's victory and the restoration of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan and its support for jihadist movements. Hussein to comment on Hussein again, thank you again for joining us. Uh, to comment on what you had just said you know I think Pakistan maybe they maybe those who support the jihadists that are fighting in Kashmir and Afghanistan and in India and other places uh are perfectly fine with this but they they forget that these are and you, you hit this point. The the jihadists are not mercenaries. You don't just turn and turn off that belief system. It doesn't happen. And that is a, a real major problem. I think that this is what is not being understood by those in Pakistan that support this who may not actually support, you know, the jihadi worldview. But to me, the real concern here is what's happened in Pakistan is that the lesson they've the lessons that Pakistan have learned um in Afghanistan are all wrong that they can continue to support jihad in Kashmir and in Afghanistan and in, in throughout South Asia and that this will actually benefit them. But in the long run, I, I think it's a losing proposition.
1: Well, the United States is the first one that should have learned that lesson and probably did because after all, uh, it was uh, the, uh, the US decision to support quote-unquote jihad against the Soviet Union that unleashed these disparate forces there were always small groups in almost every muslim country that were radical islamists but uh, but but the massive uh, flow of resources uh, the uh, training in modern uh, uh, modern insurgency uh, the training in being able to run explosives uh, etc make ex- uh, improvised explosive devices that was given uh, to fight the Soviets, then became a self-sustaining cycle. And so people learned that against the Soviets, then they started doing it and replicating it. And then Pakistan's intelligence service, some others, kept at it for their own respective objectives. But it's an ideology that hasn't benefited anyone. Uh, the U.S. ended up having to deal with it in the form of 9/11. It endured a major attack from people who uh, uh, trained by people who were trained by people who were trained by uh, 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 at a time to fight the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan, and now uh, Pakistan will have that problem. And uh, you have rightly pointed out that they should worry about it. Um, I have been saying that. As you know, for years, uh, but uh, they're not there yet. And so, what we have to do is see um, sort of how to protect, say, for example, American and other interests uh, against the fallout of that for the moment. Uh, I don't think that that change is coming voluntarily anytime soon. And yes, the victory, quote unquote, in Afghanistan has inspired jihadi movements everywhere. That's why your long war journals is going to remain in business for a while. Uh, I wish it it could turn itself off, but no, some of these long wars will continue. They will flare up and they will reorganize. Now, I always tell the instance of the Mujahideen movement, as it was called, the uh, Tehrik-e-Mujahideen Mujahideen movement in the subcontinent, which started in the 19th century. In fact, it was the prototype that Al-Qaeda later followed. These guys raised money from all over India. And then they concentrated themselves and brought volunteers into the northwest of India, in what is today Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, bordering Afghanistan. And they said, "We will create a base here. Remember, Al Qaeda. The word Al Qaeda also means the base. We will create a base, and then from here, the base will resonate, and then we'll create an Islamic system all over India." That movement started in the uh, in, in in the middle of the nineteenth century. Uh, the British fought it, uh, eliminated its base uh, in uh, the uh, in today in Pakistan's Pakhtunkhwa province, killed its leaders, and yet, and yet, that groups uh, or uh, offshoots continued to trouble the British Empire in the subcontinent well into the 20th century.
0: Yeah, ideas don't die quickly. Um, that's a, especially powerful ideas. Whatever we may think about the, what jihadists believe, the reality is, is it resonates amongst, particularly when you have illiterate populations or poor populations, um, that they are able to manipulate. They're able to recruit and manipulate and indoctrinate. And that's what we've seen in, in a lot of countries. And well.
1: the leaders are not necessarily poor or illiterate. Uh, they are they are people who are so so so. Then they attract both kinds of people. They attract the true believers, and then they also attract opportunists and people who think that this is uh, this is a movement and a belief system they can write to uh, uh, to power or prominence.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Hussein. I'm going to move. There was a, a article in the Washington Post this week about the U.S. military doing a U.S. Army doing an assessment of Afghanistan and the withdrawal. And part of that, did you get a chance to read that story? Yes. Yes. Very interesting. Um, and part of that, the military commanders were openly stating that Biden administration officials didn't understand the situation on the ground as, as it was developing. One of the things, um, you know, got me thinking about one of the things that really concerned me throughout all of this is that the, it appeared to me that the Afghan government itself didn't understand what was happening in Afghanistan. As it was happening, did, did you think that the Afghan government truly understood that the US le- was leaving, was going to abandon Afghanistan and leave the government to the and the people to the predations of the Taliban?
1: Look, I have no way of knowing what they really thought or didn't think, but it is quite obvious to me that um, it was difficult for somebody like President uh, Ghani, who had been a technocrat in the West. Uh, and had and, and had a career primarily the World Bank and the international multilateral institutions with close relations with the United States, for him to think that the Americans would not have calculated uh, the risks of abandoning Afghanistan to the Taliban, and therefore assuming that push comes to shove. America will keep enough of a residual presence for us to be able to reorganize, regroup, and fight again. Uh, that's perfectly possible. I know, again, as I said, I don't know what their thinking was. The second part of it is that, that the U.S. didn't think it through, I think, is down to hubris. I, it was largely diplomatic hubris. Uh, you know, when you, when you read about zalm uh, Khalilzad was trying to negotiate even at the last minute that uh, there should be a handing over of power with you know, somebody like Karzai and then some committee should be... The Taliban were never going to do that. You and I both wrote that, by the way. You read Mullah speeches the same as I did. That's the Amir of the Taliban. It was very clear that they were saying that we signed the Doha Agreement only because that's an agreement about American withdrawal. We have made no other commitment except to facilitate the American withdrawal, meaning that when the Americans are withdrawing, we will not shoot them in the back. That's what our agreement is. And the rest of it was all American diplomatic fantasy. And so the Taliban were always going to do what they were going to do. The question is, why didn't the U.S. realize that that's what they were going to do? And I put that to this common fallacy that I have found in this country where everybody assumes, oh, everybody's like, you know, we are all the same. So since we are all the same, isn't it in their interest that we are putting so much money on the table that if they do it our way, that there will be some money available to them? Wouldn't they want that? Well, guess what? They turn around and they say, ah, when it comes to choosing between God and money, we're choosing God. And the Americans are kind of, you know, the diplomats are surprised. Uh, Similarly, when the Pakistanis say, look, we agree with you. This is what ought to happen. But uh, we can't make the Taliban do anything they don't want to do. But you have all this leverage. Yes, we have this leverage. But we have this leverage because we don't use it. So therefore, we won't use it. And these were things that the Americans found totally astounding. And I used to talk to some American diplomats, and I tried to explain to them, but they would always say, nah, that's not how things, you know, um, should be." I said, "Well, should be and ought to be are two different things. Uh, sh- should be and are is two different things. They are not that way. This is what's going on on the ground. And the Taliban—they believe in jihad. Jihad never ends." as a result of a deal. Jihad does not end in a deal. The deal can be to reduce losses, and so you can have a deal for a withdrawal. And so the Afghans got confused because they assumed that, why would the Americans leave us to what actually happened? Then some of them anticipated it. That's why a lot of them got on planes and left. Um, but the Americans thought nah, and then there were really these people. I mean, the International Crisis Group and some of these other uh, sort of, you know, um, Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, some former diplomats, some current diplomats, and above all, Mr. Khalilzad and his team were constantly putting out. And then the Pakistani diplomats who are doing it, possibly as disinformation. Trust us, the Taliban have changed, and they are a modern. Forward looking group. They are a, we should think of them as a nationalist insurgency that has more or less won. And so, therefore, they want to have a broad based government so that they can have legitimacy. They never cared about legitimacy. And even now, they don't care as much about legitimacy. They want, you will notice that they will stop worrying about le- legitimacy now that they know that the $8 billion. Of Afghan treasury funds that they thought they could get, they are not going to get. So now they will they will make less of an effort. Because so far they have been great at getting and winning concessions. They've never made a concession. What concession have they really made? And then they say these things which people, diplomats, say, ah, oh, okay, because Western diplomacy is a lot about parsing words. So they think, ah, okay, we've got the right words. These guys are saying we. Respect the right of women to education. And the Western diplomats say, oh, we got them to say that. But the second, the kicker comes next in accordance with Islam. And the Western diplomat turns around to his colleagues and says, well, I mean, that can't be that bad. You know, according to Islam, we will get some some religious people from Saudi Arabia and Indonesia to tell them that that's and then they'll change. No, they won't. When they say, according to Sunnah, what they mean is, according to the Islam, we have been taught in the madrasas where we were students, because th- the word Taliban means student, and the Taliban movement is born out of Deobandi, Sunni, Hanafi, madrasas, a very specific denomination. Secondly, the Taliban, that is why the Taliban do not have mass support. That's why they never agreed to an election or any other means of ascertaining public opinion, because... Uh, they represent a very particularist interpretation of islam. that's who they are. So it's like it's like talking to uh, the uh, the head of a religious denomination of some other religion that takes over power and then ignoring the theology of that denomination and thinking that they will become broad-based all of a sudden Not going to happen.
0: Yeah, it was the, it's the classic case of projection, um, in, in diplomatic circles. They never understood, again, when you don't recognize that the Taliban's a religious movement that has deep held religious beliefs. And I mean, Hussein, you know this because you and, you and I were reading these statements. They were coming out and calling democracy satanic and a tool of the devil. And they believe this and, and it, you know, for people that, for in diplomat Western diplomats who are very concerned and, and and who value words, statements like that should have always been a red flag. Um, and they would say this in English. That's what drove me the the most insane. You didn't need to go out of your way to translate this stuff. It was all out there for all of us to see. But instead, diplomats saw what they wanted. My only real question in all this: I wish we can get him in a room and give him the truth serum. Did Calizade believe this? or was he fooled? I can't imagine that he didn't understand the Taliban this but but we'll never really know. That's probably a secret he'll take to his grave.
1: Well, I think that one should never get into, try to get into motives. Maybe he really thought, I'm bringing peace, I'm ending war. And there are still people, I don't know if you saw a piece by a, uh, a, a AP journalist uh, as an op-ed piece in The Hill, saying afghanistan is more secure under the taliban but then on every other count it's worse off meaning you know the war has ended and and there were people who thought ah this war the, the war is the worst thing and the truth is that sometimes some things can be even worse than war like what's going on in afghanistan now and it is war by other means you have a group with lots of weapons to whom the americans left another large treasure to over trove of weaponry, and they are terrorizing an entire population uh, by by weapons, making them conform to their beliefs. Now, if you have those beliefs, you think, ah, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just telling people to follow the path of God. But the truth is that that's not what we all believe. People should have the right to choose their faith. People should have the right to make their choices. There is a United Nations human rights Uh, 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 charter, they don't believe in any of those things. And they have a very simple, like these mother where they have received their education, have a very basic and simple curriculum. Um, I once wrote an essay about that called Islam's Medieval Outposts. This was right after 9-11 because people needed to understand what what, what these people believe in. And I actually listed the curriculum and all that and talked about how some of these madrasas, you go to their library, their library is is smaller than the shelf at my back because they have these very specific texts. People have chosen that those are the only texts everybody has to memorize and that's it. That's the sum total of knowledge that you need. So um, yes, they they sit in modern cars, but do they want their kids to go and learn how to make a car? No, um, they can fly the Blackhawks if uh, if somebody can learn to fly them. That has been left. Uh, God has left us a Blackhawk through the Americans. We'll we'll fly it for our purpose, etc. But do they want to actually create a population that is? Uh, technologically advanced no that's not a goal the goal is still that limited curriculum that's who they are that's what their belief system is yes would they like to have some money of course they would would they like to have um, more international assistance but yes but on the condition that that assistance is used the way they want to use it not the way you want to use it Um, and do they want to be part of the restaurant they want to be able to fly around the world they want to be able to be connected. Uh, uh, to their benefit, without changing anything they do or believe.
0: Yes, and so absolutely.
1: And so, did Mr. Khalilzad really believe that he was persuading them to change? Uh, was he dissembling, or was he just uh, like uh, sort of deliberately uh, letting himself uh, sort of think of that he's doing? A good thing uh, because had it all turned out right, he would have been a hero and a contender for the Nobel Peace Prize. And so those are the things that uh, go on in the minds of people. But yes, everybody dropped the ball in understanding what the Taliban really stand for and what they really believe and what they represent. Everything they are doing today that is being reported and people are saying, oh, God, why is that happening? Some of us, you and me included, predicted that's exactly what will happen if the Taliban get power again. And the fact that the Taliban were never going to accept a share in power proportionate to their support in Afghan society, which probably is no more than 10, 12 percent, that they will ever do that. That too was something we could have concluded. And lastly, that the Taliban were not going to lose in negotiations something that they thought they had rightfully won on the battlefield. That also was something that should have been easy to understand. But I don't know if you saw that. Mr. Khalilzad once gave an interview in which he said there was an analytical mistake that was made about the chances of a interim government or something being agreed to before. But the Taliban have never agreed to any such thing in the past. And the experience of the Mujahideen before the Taliban should have been an eye-opener. The Mujahideen never, ever successfully agreed on power sharing because all power sharing deals among people who believe that each one of them is rightfully uh, uh, sort of is, 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 is the only righteous group a power-sharing deal among them can only be uh, uh, sort of put in position by somebody more powerful than everybody together. And that's what the role of the United States was historically since 9-11, the more powerful group that made the Afghans uh, sort of agree to something. By removing that, President Trump and later President Biden created the disequilibrium in Afghanistan that has resulted in the suffering of the Afghan people. And let me say this, that it will not be only the Afghan people who will suffer. Just like when 9-11 happened, everybody was taken by surprise. The -the over-the-horizon ability to uh, keep track of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, etc., is not going to be as perfect as it has been made out to be. That's what happened before. Intelligence often requires a human element. Technology alone is not a substitute. And as long as there's people among 39 million Afghans who are plotting, planning, and doing something, there will definitely someday be a plan or a plot that will succeed and that we will not have uh, cottoned on to early enough.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Hussein. The, I, I don't know if you saw this, but in uh, mid-December, General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, stated that our ability, our ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance ability inside of Afghanistan is one to 2% of what it was, um, before the U.S. left the country. And keep in mind, the U.S. military is always going to give you their best assessment. So you could probably put that number closer to zero. Um, it's, this is this is what's happened. I mean, how did we kill bin Laden? How did we kill numerous Al Qaeda leaders, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan during the drone campaign? It was because of a presence, because we had the NDS and we had the the National Director of Security, Afghanistan's intelligence service, the police, the military, uh, people who were were helping us inside of Afghanistan, no matter what mistakes we we made there that did work, and that 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 rug has been pulled on that um my last question to you, and you touched on this with the um the money that is in the that is earmarked for the afghan what was earmarked for the previous afghan government I've heard anywhere from seven to nine billion dollars in u s banks um, President Biden recently, the, just last week, he allocated $3.5 million of this to support the Afghan people um, who are suffering with famine and, and lack of medical care. Again, this is because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Afghan people were highly dependent on U.S. and international aid. Um, but can that money be kept out of the hands of the Taliban? Is it even possible to think that the Taliban? Won't be able to to get their hands on on these supplies, on the cash, and use it for its own purposes. Are we being again being naive here?
1: Uh, there is a naivety here, but before that, let me just say, eighty percent of the Afghan governments, the Afghan Republic government, uh, Af- Afghan Republican government's uh, budget came from international donors. So a lot of this money actually came from international donors to begin with. Uh, and ended up becoming Afghan government reserves. Some of it is private sector money, obviously, because uh, in any banking system, there's several people who have accounts. So there must be companies, individuals, etc. as well. Now, uh, uh, saying that uh, we will spend $3.5 of it or allocate it for humanitarian purposes, I think is noble, because Afghanistan will need a lot of humanitarian assistance moving forward. The, the Taliban's takeover has disrupted everything in Afghanistan, including uh, local productivity and uh, changed the total system of incentives, etc. That makes uh, you know things go forward. Uh, but uh, to assume that when you send a humanitarian assistance and economic assistance uh, to a country run by a rogue group. Uh, will somehow result in going to the people without going to the rogue group, I think that will, that is always naive. I don't know if you remember, I mean, you know, we all forget, but there was an oil for food program in Iraq before, uh, while Saddam Hussein was in power, uh, before the US went into Iraq. And at that time, Saddam Hussein ran a very effective global campaign uh, talking about how the Afghan people were suffering before because of sanctions. There were stories about Afghan hospitals running out of, uh, you know, uh, stuff for children and this and that, etc. But the oil for food program, which was Afghanistan, Iraq was allowed to sell some oil. Saddam Hussein's Iraq was allowed to sell some oil in return for money that would be used only for food, medicine and very basic necessities. That oil for food program eventually became Saddam Hussein's slush fund. And if you remember, he would give contracts to politicians and prominent people in the Western countries, who would then support the withdrawal and end of sanctions. And uh, and that basically is is the classic case of how these things work. But that said, the people of Afghanistan are really suffering, uh, Bill. And. The United States and the international community needs to do something about it. So if mechanisms can be created whereby there is minimal leakage to the Taliban, the Taliban are already using the food program that is currently in place. Uh, they are paying their troops with food uh, that is being sent. So the so the so the Taliban foot soldiers get paid in in, in, in food, which other people then have to buy off them. Uh, that 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 that's already benefiting the regime, uh, but but then we can't starve 39 million Afghans uh, because of the Taliban either. So some mechanism will have to be worked at. At the end of the day, um, I used to say I don't know if you remember. I used to say that the U.S. if it walks out of Afghanistan, it will walk out of Afghanistan only to have to go back into Afghanistan at a later date, and. Uh, And until that happens, we will go through many cycles of debate about what is the best course of dealing with it. We still do not have a formula which we can apply to rogue regimes like the Taliban.
0: Well said. This is a tragedy of our own making. Hussein, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe and leave us a review, hopefully a positive review. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon.